0: in Dallas and spread around and watching online, we are in the middle of a series called Can You Relate? And we're talking about how we should relate to the many, many different relationships that we have in life. And we have made our way through talking about our most important relationship with God and how you view Him, how we relate to God's Word, how we relate to our life stages, whether single or married, and how we relate to children. Today, we're going to talk about something that 25% of your life relates to. Not sleep. I know some of you guys would love me to talk about that. Here's how you relate to sleep. You do it well as an act of faith, all right? And you know that the Lord gives to his beloved even in their sleep. There, we knocked that one off. That was easy. It's a sign of great faith when you go to bed. You know that your God works for you. You don't need to be awake. But today we're going to talk about what makes us tired. Work. How do you relate to work? I think a lot of us have a mindset with work that's kinda you know um, a little perversion of the seven dwarfs, right? I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. And that's what we do. We go taken off, work is a curse. That's how we think about it. And we could not be thinking more unbiblically. Work is not a curse. Work existed in paradise past, and work will exist in paradise future. I don't know what you think about when you think of heaven but probably you're a victim of cartoons like I am. And you think that somehow when you die, you're gonna be given a cloud, uh, a white robe and a harp. And uh, when you've been there 10,000 days, you'll know less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. And you're gonna be in an endless church sing-along. That is my vision of hell, okay, (laughs) is that, uh, that I'm just sitting there in a cloud with a harp. All right, that isn't heaven. Heaven will be a place that we will work without the effects of sin. It is a fact that because of sin, work has um, become a bit more toilsome, that we work instead of um, finding our dignity and purpose in it, we work to find our complete meaning in it. There is no question that the Bible teaches that sin and our rebellion against God has made work more difficult. It's made uh, the work of just bringing forth um, fruit from the ground more toilsome because all of creation fell with us. And so the ground is now hard, and we have to work to bring forth produce. Um, the work of raising the next generation. We're called to be fruitful and multiply. The Scripture says from now on to Eve, you're going to bring forth children in pain. That is not the curse of labor. It always cracks me up when guys go, uh, women really you know, didn't want to escape as uh, rebels Uh, the curse that God gave them, they wouldn't get epidurals because God says that they're supposed to bring forth now children in pain as a result of kind of corrupting all of humanity. Let me just tell you something. Uh, If you want to have that worldview, that's fine. Just don't let Adam use tractors when he tills the earth. By the way, that's not even what the verse means. Here's what the verse means. Hey, Eve, because now you're a sinner and you're married to a sinner, you're going to bring forth people after your kind. They're going to be little sinners and they're going to break your heart. And they're going to rebel against you the way you rebelled against me. And so child-rearing is going to be one of the most painful things that you do. Now, grace can invade it. See also last week's message. But uh, you just need to know that you're going to be raising a little sinner, a little rebel. And unless that child is reconciled to God, Eve, it's not going to go well with you or that child. That's why, Eve, that child's best chance is for you to reconcile yourself to me. So, you can raise that child in a way that they would see that there is a redemptive possibility in this world. But mark my word, you're going to raise children of wrath, all right? Children of rebellion now. And may the grace of God invade them through you. Work is not a curse. It existed in paradise past. I'll show you that today. It will exist in paradise future. Let me just take you to heaven, all right? Um, Revelation chapter 21 talks about the fact that there is going to be a day that, the earth will no longer be clouded. It says this in um, Revelation 21, 23. This is after what's called the millennial reign, the thousand years where Christ himself rules uh, on earth. There's another great rebellion. Uh, There's one last great judgment. It's called the great white throne judgment of God. And uh, from that moment on, there is nothing but glory in the presence of the king. There is no sin. Every tear has been dried. And uh, God has accomplished his purposes and restored paradise lost. Now watch what happens. It says this, and the city, talking about the new Jerusalem, has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the lamb. Now watch, next verse, verse 24. It says, the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In other words, the whole earth will operate in great peace um, because you need to know heaven is not a place we're going to. God's going to redeem this earth that has been uh, affected by the curse. This is going to be heaven. Right now, it is the job of those of us who know God to bring about a little remnant, to bring about a little... um, anticipation of his kingdom, which is to come, that God has put his people here who have come to know him, Adam and Eve, who have been redeemed, to be doing the work of redemption until God brings it about to completion. The number one work of redemption is to tell um, other people about the kindness of God, win them back into relationship with him, so when they stand before the great white throne judgment of God, they can move into the glory that God intends. There's going to be a day that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that God is good that his word is a treasure, and that the greatest gift in life is to live in relationship with him. But you need to know, while it is true, as we're memorizing right now as a body, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is great condemnation for those who continue to try and find life and purpose and meaning and joy and satisfaction and forgiveness and righteousness apart from grace and mercy made available by God through the gift of his son who went to work to redeem us from our sin and there's going to be a day when the earth is as it should be and it says that in that day the nations will walk by the light of the revelation of God we'll all know that God is good and we'll all have the ability to and we will be in perfect harmony with him and the kings of the earth this is an eternity future will bring their glory into it what do you think that means it means that when you go to work and you produce something that's beneficial for the world and, a, and, and, and useful to the king, you'll come and you will bring him what he likes and Jesus will say dilly dilly, all right, to you. And he'll be very happy because you've been out there, all right, not probably brewing Bud Light or maybe good wine and you will bring it and the king will use it to bless all in his kingdom and all the nations. We're going to work in heaven. Heaven is not an eternal coffee break. It's just not. But you will be redeemed from the curse. So let's talk about how you relate to work. Here we go. A couple of truths. Number one, um, God is a worker and we are made in his image. And because we're made in his image, that means God made us to go to work. And again, the work and it's... um, and it's given, having been given to us is not a curse. If you go back to Genesis chapter one, you'll see that, um, that the earth was formless and void. There's, the reason for that is it's a place of judgment. Um, there was already an enemy here. When God wasn't here and, and, and the enemy who was Satan was cast out of God's presence because he um, rebelled against God and believed that he didn't need God, that glory wasn't due to God, that glory was due to himself. He was cast out of the presence of the Lord. and so. It was settled once and for all that God was most powerful, but the question is, is God the most good? And what God's about to do is to display to the angelic realm something he could never have shown before, except for evil moving from a philosophical, um, you know, an ontological possibility to a practical reality. What do I mean by that? All right, if God is good, all right, that means that non-good must exist, right? But, but in, In eternity past, there was no evil, there was only God. But because God is love, he had to create. He wanted to create to share his goodness and his glory. The first thing that God created was the angelic realm. And when God created the angelic realm, because he is love and love goes to work always to create blessing, um, the angels enjoyed him. But then one angel led a rebellion saying, I think I'm worthy of praise, I think I am good, I think I deserve worship. And God cast him out. So now we know that God is sovereign and powerful. But the question is, is he really better than Satan could have done? When Satan was cast out of the presence of God, because God is light and love, there was no light and love where Satan was. There was darkness and chaos and no beauty. Into that world now, God is going to create something. And that something is beauty and paradise. Now, there's an enemy there. And one of the things that God creates on that place that previously was formless and void... This paradise now restored is people made in his image. And he tells them, all you got to do is walk with me and it will stay glorious. But I'm going to warn you, there's an enemy there and he's a liar. If you want to listen to him, you can. If you want to buy the lie that you don't need me, who, is, who are good, if you want to choose good and evil on your own, you can do that. But the day you do it, you'll surely die because you're not like me. You're not intrinsically good. So you can have faith in me. And men have always been made righteous by faith in their relationship with God, not by what they do, but who they trust. And when men said, I'm not going to trust God, I think I'll trust in my own ability to choose what is right and wrong. I think I'll be God. From that moment on, we brought in death. And so creation, the paradise that God made, has been fallen. But watch what God does now as a result of that. He gets to show that he's good. How good is he? He is going to accomplish his purposes, and he's even going to redeem those that rebelled against him. This is the story of human history. It's the story of all creation. But in the midst of this, when God went to work to make beauty, the world was formless and void. And what did God do? It says he created a dome over the earth because he was not to create man, and so man needed a certain kind of atmosphere to live. And so um, he put a dome over it like, like roofers put on ceilings. He put lights in the sky in order to mark out time because men was going to live now according to time. And um, he put lights in the ceiling just like electricians put lights somewhere, he took um, what was vacant and he put this thing of beauty and perfection like a construction worker turns a vacant lot into a useful building. He took an empty field that was chaotic and and, uh, overrun with darkness and weeds. And like a landscape architect makes a beautiful park, God brought beauty. And God gave us a job description. There's my second point. God created people with a job description. Long before sin came into the world, he gave them meaning and purpose because that's what his work gives, purpose and dignity, and it's a key part of our ability to love other people. Don't you feel love when you get great service? I know I do. My buddy Benson was driving down the road here um, last week. He's got his two kids, a two-year-old and a six-month-old. He had, um, had to go back to the pediatrician because he's got a fever. He had uh, actually rearranged his trunk not long before that and had taken out some of the tools in his um, car to make room for some other things, and now he's got a flat inside the side of 635. And so he sits there, and he gets on his phone, and he calls, calls this thing called angelic roadside service. And don't you know it felt like it? And so what did God do, you think? You think God sent an angel? I mean, he could have, right? Too many times we think that's what God does, that he takes a, um, you know, some... He takes, he whips up the wind and through some serendipitous mystery, he just all of a sudden blesses people. God typically blesses people through other people. And that's his plan right now for redeemed humanity, It's for you to go to work and to seek the welfare of the city in which you live and to be a means of blessing others. And so here comes this guy, And he gets there, and he is going to replace Benson's tire, and he realizes Benson has the right tools. But rather than giving up and saying, hey, man, I'm sorry, I can't do it, the guy went to work. He said he was innovative, he was creative, he was tenacious, he was patient, and he worked until he got his tire dropped, and he got his new tire put on and got him on his way. And Benson said, man, that is unbelievable. You're like a blessing to me. You know what the guy said? He said, I want to be a blessing to you. I name my company this way for a specific reason, that you might see the kindness of God in the way that I serve you in your hour of need. Now, don't you think Benson had his prayers answered in that moment? Don't you think that other guy felt like he had dignity and purpose and meaning? You bet he did. This is what it says in the Scripture. In uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then he says, this is what we're going to do. We're going to give them a job. They're going to rule over this new creation the way I rule over everything. And God created man in his image, verse 27. In the image of God, he created them, male and female he created them. Now watch this. The very first time God speaks, he gives man the dignity and the privilege of having purpose and meaning through work that brings blessing to others. Why? Because that's who God is. God is love and love is always active. And so here we have it. God blessed them and God said to them, bring forth other people. You're gonna partner with me to bring forth more humanity that will walk with me and enjoy me and be a blessing and fill the earth. It'll be an orchestra of giftedness and an orchestra of dignity and an orchestra of of a community that seeks one another's best interest and the earth will be full of blessing and you'll bring the glory of your work to share with one another. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God gave people a job description. When we go to work, it should feel good to go to work because you were created to do good work. You're not created to cheat, you're not created to cut corners, you're not... um, You know, work increases your sense of worth. Now watch this, it doesn't give you worth. You already have extreme worth because God loves you. And because God loves you, he gives you something to exist for. It is so appropriate that I'm doing work after parenting because there is no greater work that we could do than to shepherd other humans into a relationship with God. And don't you know, okay, that kids are grateful to God when he sends them the angel of a present, passionate follower of God who has a plan to shepherd their little heart. Don't you know kids lay there and go, God, you must really love me because this daddy of mine is not trying to find his dignity by being gone and by buying me things and thinking that that's what I want. No, what I want is to know that there's a present protector who provides for me and isn't looking to have um, the world celebrate him. He is looking for me to celebrate you because he is a present testimony to who I am. Don't you think little kids who have a mother that is present in their life, who doesn't buy the lie that there's more dignity in being out there in the workplace than giving birth to and shape to eternal humanity, made in the image of God, who's absolutely there, present, focused on them, discipling them, caring for them, loving them, reminding them of things that are true. Don't you think that child celebrates God? You bet they do. In fact, we have uh, such a problem with this that, that um, while we talk a lot about how church is, um, um, when we talk a lot about how uh, valuable a mother is, sometimes we uh, do silly things like, You know, we tell moms, like, hey, man, the most important thing you can do every day is to make sure you spend an extended time with God. And I've even had moms who will just say this. Now watch, uh, uh, careful, because it is important. Moms will never be the kind of moms they need to be. Dads will never be the kind of dads they need to be unless they spend time with the Lord, unless they abide with them. And out of overflow of the one whose image they're supposed to bear, uh, they won't be an image bearer. But sometimes I think moms, um, you know, I've talked to moms who are at moments where they're um, sitting there, they're at a Bible study, and they're saying, man, you got to get up and spend time with the Lord. And, and, and they take care of everything. They're finally seated. They got their Bible open. They got their journal out. They got their coffee right there. And all of a sudden, the baby cries. And they're kind of like, oh, man, this is just great, right? Lord, I'm trying to spend time with you. I'm trying to do what they say at church I should do on my Wednesday Bible study. I should spend time with you. And now the baby's crying. Come on, Lord. I'm ready to sit here and go to work. And I think the Lord would say, hey, mom, that is your work. Go love that child. Go worship me by picking that child up, feeding them, changing their diaper, caring for them, giving them a sense of presence and love and nurture. Hey, you need to read your Bible today, but right now what you need to be because you are a Bible reader and a Bible liver is go love that child. This is exactly what happens in 1 uh, John where 1 John chapter 3, verse 18 says, little children, let us not love with just word uh, with, with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. And verse 17 says this. Verse 17 says, whoever's the world's goods, and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against them, how does the love of God abide in him? Don't you know that God wants you sometimes because you're a church-going worshiper, because you're a gospel-informed Christian? Don't you know the world wishes you would go to work? And bless them, and not just sing a hymn. If you go up to somebody who's hungry, and say, man, I see you're hungry. I'm gonna pray for you. When you've got the ability to cook them a meal and feed them, don't you think they're discouraged? I know I would be. Work is one of the primary ways that we have to show love to other people. And everything we do, we go to work. You've got one job. You ever seen these things, right? Uh, there's whole websites committed to this little fun Um, idea that when people had one job and they don't do it, it messes things up. Here's one, this guy had one job, right? And that is to put hot dog buns in the hot dog bag and they messed it up, right? You had one job and that was to make a third place medal, not a thirst place medal, all right? You just messed up the entire Olympics right here. You had one job, all right? Get the angle correctly. Don't mess it up. You got one job. Let's go ahead and make a nice little red stripe right here. Let's put the red square in the red stripe, all right? You got one job. You ever seen this one? Put the cheese on the meat, please. One job. All right? And then there's this one. You got one job. You don't want people parking in the fry lane, right? Let's get them in the fire, out of the fire lane so they don't fry. All right? Do your job. When when somebody doesn't do their job right and they got one job, you got a problem. Okay, listen, let me tell you something. You got one job. You got one job. You want to know what it is? to live as Christ live as a worshiper of God by going to work. Um, I, I love this, um, you know, just way I would say to you is that uh, God has created us to seek the welfare of the city in which we live. Just like God sought the welfare of this world that we brought into corruption and he entered into it and he went to work in order to bring about blessing and order, and love, and peace. He has left us here to do the same. And there has been this idea that has been introduced. It actually wasn't introduced until um, probably about the 19th century that this this small thinking about a spiritual and a secular divide was even introduced. The word secular, it's just a Latin word, secularism, uh, that means uh, worldly or temporal. And the idea was introduced that, that um, and, and it really kind of came out of some of the language that we use, like what do we typically call Sunday? We call Sunday the Lord's day. As if Monday through Saturday are our days. No, what God was trying to show us is, listen, you don't need to work all the time. I want you to have a little rhythm to your life. I built you. That's why sleep is an act of faith. And it's why he said on Sundays, you don't got to work all the time. You know, there's a day I want you to rest. I want you to remind yourself who I am. That's why we gather. We are here to remind one another about the kindness of God, the goodness of God, so that we would walk with him and remember what our job is. And so at the very first time that Watermark gathered and we got ready to break, something spilled out of my mouth that now has been said after every corporate gathering Watermark has almost ever had. And here it is. What do I say at the very end of every message? Man, have a great week of worship. And the reason I do that is because I have a biblical view of work. Do you really think that God only cares about uh, the hour and a half that we spend together every week? Do you guys know that you'll spend more time at work in the next two weeks than you will in this building together corporately uh, if you don't ever miss a Sunday and you spend an hour and a half with us every Sunday? 52 times 1.5 is 78. Two weeks of work is 80 hours. Do you think God really cares about what you do in here for an hour and a half, every week, for a year, much more than he cares about what you do every day, all day for him? Um, One great Dutch theologian said this, there's not a single square inch of all creation that the Lord our God doesn't say mine. Most of us kind of treat God like we treat the government. We pay a certain amount of tax for him, and we hope we've got a little left over to do what we want to do. No, that's not who we are. There is no such thing as a spiritual Secular divide. There is no worldly temporary world for us. This is our Father's world and we live in it and we live for his glory. And God has us here for a reason. What's the reason? To go to work to be a blessing to others. Our work doesn't give us dignity in in and of itself in that we go and accomplish something and so people say we have great worth. No, everything we do has great worth if it's a means to be a blessing to others. Work is worship. If you love to worship God, then your favorite expression in all of life ought to be T-G-I-M. Thank God it's Monday. Because I get to go now into a dark world that's broken, that has chaos, that has insecurity, that has idolatry, that's got greed, that's got selfishness, and I get to go be God's person in that world. And the work that I do, I do to honor God, how? By being a blessing to others. What a privilege to be God's mean of grace and restoration. You see, it's so funny. The church just messes this up. There's um, you know, a story I know about an evangelical college that um, was uh, talking about how um, the sacredness of all work, and yet in a spring chapel, they, they brought a bunch of students in that during the summer were gonna go and work on a mission assignment somewhere. And they prayed for those students. They, they blessed them. They asked that God would honor them. And so a professor from the business school went to the the dean and said, hey, why don't we at chapel next week get all the kids together? They're gonna go and work in an accounting office on internships and pray for them. And and the guy said, no, we're not gonna do that. Why? Because he betrayed their statement that all vocations have dignity. All vocations have dignity. Martin Luther took on the Roman Catholic view that basically taught that there was this... um, this idea of a varsity vocation for God and a JV vocation. Too many people have this mindset. I can remember my friend Kelly Shackelford who graduated number one from Baylor Law School. I I was headed to law school. And what happened in my life is that God just, just gave me an ability to communicate and to serve and to lead in a way that I knew that my greatest joy was going to be in this thing that our world commonly calls the pastorate. But I still to this day miss the fact that I'm not deployed in the business world for the glory of God. I still to this day um, love to sit with my friends that are in the legal arena and talk about law. And I love to sit with men who lead businesses and talk about strategies for their place of work to be a source of glory to God. I love that. I love spending time with members of Watermark, helping them create a culture at work that their employees are grateful that this is the master that is over them who gives them fair wages, who, who sees dignity in what they do and who honors them and doesn't see them as, as pigeons or serfs in order to bring more glory to their vats, but who loves them and seeks their best interest and develops them and sets them up for success and finds means to bless their family. I love to do that with men. I remember telling my friend Kelly Shackelford, he came to me and said, Todd, I wanna to be a pastor. I've always wanted to be a pastor. And I said to Kelly, I said, Kelly, let me just tell you something. Man, God's given you a great mind. You just graduated number one from your law school we need God's men in the legal arena. There was actually two members of Watermark, Don Campbell and, um, and my friend Charles Bundren, who, who grabbed Kelly and said, Kelly, listen, what we're doing is a lot of work pro bono. What we really need to do is get one guy who can do this full time and actually create case law that all of us can take assignments and do pieces, but somebody who's gonna protect religious liberty and make the case for, um, for the, uh, uh, a right understanding and the importance of, uh, the first amendment being preserved throughout our nation's future history. And so they got Kelly and they, and they provided for him so he could go to work defending religious liberty. Praise God, Kelly Shackelford didn't go into the pastorate but took his calling. That's what vocation means. It's Latin for a calling, to be called to something. If you are a follower of Jesus, you've got one job. You are called to worship God by bringing peace and beauty and order and freedom to others. Kelly is one of the world's leading constitutional authorities. He's argued cases to protect religious liberty before our Supreme Court. He helps our congressmen and senators write laws. What an amazing, noble service for the king. And so is your job. Martin Luther was approached by um, a man who had trusted Christ under his ministry and and he just said, hey, what do you think I should do? And Mr. Luther, what should I do now that I've become a believer? Should I be a minister? Should I be a traveling evangelist? Should I become a monk? Because that, again, was what the Catholic Church was telling people that's the highest spiritual calling is to go into monastic work. And Luther said, what do you do right now? He said, I'm a shoemaker. And he said, great, then make a good shoe and sell it at a fair price. Because that's your calling. You go to work now for the glory of God. Um, I think of Harry Ironside, who was pastor of Moody Bible Church, in Chicago in the 1920s and 30s. And Harry Ironside tells a story when he was a kid in Canada. There was an old Scottish man who was a cobbler. And in order to help make his, a little bit more money in the summer, he went to work for this cobbler. And this cobbler, the entire job he gave him was to to take leather that had been soaking in some water and to pull it out. And he had a a piece of metal on his thigh and Ironside would sit there and just pound that leather until it was hard and dry. And then the cobbler would take it and he would use that as a sole to stitch and make a shoe. Now, there was another cobbler in that town that was a lewd guy that used to, uh, all the parents say to the little boys, don't go in there because that guy's crass, all right? Uh, and that guy is vile. But uh, because now he was working for a cobbler, hiring <coughs> excuse me, decided to walk in there one day and he saw this guy. And he would take the leather right out of the water and immediately start stitching it on the upper part of the shoe. And he looked at him and he said, hey man, aren't you supposed to pound that out? And the Kaaba looked at him and he said, ah, son, they come back to me a whole lot faster this way. Why, because when you sew wet leather onto an upper part of a shoe, what's gonna happen is that that leather is going to shrink and eventually it's gonna tear at the stitching and then it's gonna come back. But Ironside saw a job he didn't wanna do that was hard, that was better for the customer, but customers were clearly still buying shoes from that guy. And so he went back to Mr. Dan McKay, this Scottish cobbler, and he said, hey, uh, Mr. McKay, I've got an idea. Why don't we just kind of skip this one little step and just start sewing it right onto the shoe? And Mr. McKay said to him, Harry, I don't cobble shoes just for four bits and six bits. I'm doing this for the glory of God. And I expect one day to see every single shoe that I made in a big pile at the judgment seat of Christ. And I don't want the Lord to say to me in that day, hey, Dan, that was a poor job. You didn't do your best work here. You cut corners for greater profit and you did not have in mind how you could bless others with your vocation when you made shoes. He said, I wanna hear my Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant. He went on, Ironside uh, said, that guy looked at me and said, Harry, some guys are called to preach. That turned out to be Ironside's destiny and some are men meant to call to make shoes. I make shoes for the glory of God. I dare say that that cobbler probably did more to advance the gospel in that town than many preachers who didn't do their work with dignity. In fact, I I know of a story of a guy that uh, was a mechanic, like my friend Gary Myers here in town. I'm gonna tell you what, if your car is broken down, don't you wish you ran across a godly mechanic? Man, is there anything that's a greater blessing than a mechanic that knows what the problem is and fixes just that problem? If they think somebody can fix it better and cheaper, they send you there? That's what my friend Gary Myers, who's a member of this church, does. I watch him serve people like crazy. I watch him say, you don't need to do that. He could sell them cars and push them other places, and he says, no, the, best, the cheapest car you can own is the one you've got. Let me do this to repair it for you. Here's your options, okay? But here's what I would recommend to you. This is what I would do if it was my daughter's car. This is what I'm gonna do for you. Why? Because what a way to bless people. To restore what is broken. That's what God does. And that's what God has his people do. story was um, told of a a, a, a television station that was gonna go and just talk about and do an expose on the corruption within auto mechanic world. And they went around and they had a car that was rigged. They knew exactly what the problem was. Maybe a vacuum line was undone that uh, would make the car either not start or just stall out right away. It was an easy fix. It could just be reinserted and then taped, if it even needed to be taped, or maybe if they wanted to go all the way and replace the actual vacuum line, they could, but it didn't take much work at all, and they went around, and they showed all the different mechanics that saw the problem, identified the problem, and then overcharged, and they sent old women in there and young women. They sent uh, men, they sent guys that were blue-collar, and he watched the way those mechanics treated each one of them differently because those mechanics didn't work for the glory of God. They worked, and they summed up the situation and tried to do what was best for their own profit, but there was one mechanic, no matter who they sent him, just said, he got a simple fix right here. It's going to be your lucky, your lucky day. Guess what? I'm going to put this back on here. I'm going put a little tape on that thing, and you're good to go. What do I owe you? You owe me nothing. That took me 15 seconds. God bless you. And they asked the mechanic, what in the world makes you do this? No other mechanic in town is doing this. And the mechanic said the same thing that that little cobbler set up in Canada. He said simply this. He said, listen, I'm not here for me. I love Christ, and this is my ministry. And I have a chance to bless people and not exploit people for the glory of God. That's exactly what I'm going to do. That became the lead story, actually, on the top of the fold of a newspaper. I will tell you that that auto mechanic probably did more to advance the gospel in that community that day than every preacher in the entire region. Because it was his calling to be faithful when he went to work. Um, there's a quote that's been around for a long time that just talks about what makes somebody Um, a useful worker for God. No one really knows who this is attributed to. Some people wrongly attributed to Luther. Luther didn't say this, but the quote goes like this. The maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays. Not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. I I gotta tell you something, God doesn't love clean floors as much as he loves people. And who doesn't love a clean floor? I mean, a clean floor is not an end in itself. It is for the glory of people that God loves that we clean floors. The work in and of itself is an expression of a love for the people that will walk on those floors. A Christian cobbler, the person said, does his duty not by putting little crosses on all the shoes he makes, but by making good shoes, because God is interested in caring for the feats of people. Do you understand the dignity of work? I mean, thank God it's Monday. When I tell you, let's go have a great week of worship, what I'm saying is, we're not paying some spiritual task and we get to go out there now and kind of get our own little cut of the pie. No, what I'm saying is, we get to go to work as God's people, spread out all over the city as godly mechanics, as godly roadside assistant people, as godly doctors. (coughs) I think about my friend Grant Beckham, who's a doctor here and an internist. And the number of people that go to see Grant and they watch Grant take time. He specifically reduced his practice so he could spend more time with patients making sure he asked about their spiritual health as much as their physical health. And I think about how people when they get in you know it's so funny how some doctors think they've got to maintain this professional relationship. You know that they've shown again and again that people get better when doctors pray with their patients. And they see this doctor and just kind of moving them through so they can make Another line. But any doctor who's in a room with a patient, just say, man, I'm gonna do everything I can. But I'm gonna say, I believe God's the great healer. And one of the things I'd love to do if you'll let me do it in the midst of giving you care and treatment is just pray for you. I know what pain is like. And if there's any way I can be a part of the means of grace, using the mind that God's given me, the training that I have, to be a source of God's blessing in your life, I'm all in. Because God uses people, not wind and serendipitous mystery. God uses people to bless people. What an incredible privilege that we get to go to work. What an incredible privilege that God lets you be a mom to be a present help to a child in trouble. What an incredible privilege that God made you a dad to be there to shepherd that kid through all the confusion of growing up in a godless world. Work has dignity. And it's a way people ought to just pray that their kids get Christian school teachers. They ought to pray that their um, doctor is a Christian doctor. They ought to go everywhere I go, I want to run into somebody who does nothing from selfishness or empty conceit but with humility of mind, considers others as more important than himself who doesn't merely look out for their own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. I pray to God, my boss, is a Christian man who isn't concerned about profit, but wants to profit me in the way he shepherds me and guides me and sets me up for success, who reminds me of the inherent dignity of being a blessing to others. If you love to worship, T-G-I-M ought to be your motto. Can I tell you something about work? When we get work wrong, it causes problems that the world is trying to figure out all the time. How to solve poverty, which exists, exists because of the way sin infects how we work. Here's the way it affects us. Number one, there's just two ways that sin can affect work. Number one, we can be just slackers. Um, we can think that our great greatest achievement in life is to not have to go to work. Man, what a shame! Can you imagine that? That's really your goal in life is to sit on a beach and drink mai tais. Now look, there are times you ought to get away and take a break, but if you think that this is your chance just to get a break instead of the living for the glory of God, you are not reading your Bible. There is no, there's, you got one job. You have one job. And that one job is to bring glory to God by being his light in the world. We show up and we go to work. We work for the common good. And by the way, the very first way we, we work for the common good is we work so that we can provide for ourselves, right? I don't sit there lazily. I don't become addicted and incompetent in what I do so others got to put me um, on underneath their care. I don't abandon my kid to go and try and find my great worth in the world so that somebody else has got to come behind and clean up the mess that I left for a child. We do our job. We are not slack in our work. Proverbs 10.4 says, poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Uh, Second Thessalonians chapter three warns us against being individuals who don't go to work. This is what it says. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition with which you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we didn't act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor do we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so we wouldn't be a burden to you. And so he goes on. Look at this, verse 10. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, he's not to eat. You're not blessing humankind when you enable them in their laziness and their undisciplined lifestyle. And what the Bible simply says is, hey, let me just tell you something. If a man won't work, let his stomach work for him. And it's hunger and it's longing for something. Well, let's go to work. Now, look, I'm not talking about people who can't work because of some significant disability. Guess what we should do? We should go to work and it counted as our great privilege to be a means of grace in their life because they're not able to do what God has still in his kindness enabled us to do. With great joy, should we care for other people who can't work, but we are not caring for people who don't work if we feed them. Number one, slack hands is the reason poverty exists, and number two, selfishness and sin. There is no question that racism, greed, systematic injustices, unjust wages that are given for good work, exploitation of the poor and the vulnerable is a reason there's poverty in this world. And if there is anything that believers ought to do, it ought to work to undo systematic injustice and racism and educational injustice in order to give people an opportunity to be educated and earn a wage that will allow them Prosper. If there's anything that believers ought to do, that would be have a calling to be godly politicians that make just laws that lead to the blessing of others. If there's anything that godly people ought to do, is they ought to bust through materialistic capitalism. And they ought to live underneath the biblical ethic of capitalism, but not for the purpose of gross, abundant greed. But if they make much money, they ought to be rich in good works. Not in more Mai Tais and beach houses. What a blessing that God would make you wealthy so that you could systematically begin to work to undo all that isn't right as a means of God's grace. Poverty exists because of how sin affects work and all that we do. And it makes me crazy when I hear some people talk about the fact that gosh, Todd, I just really wanna be God's man. I really wanna be a spiritual person. And sometimes their lack in their work. I've talked to people who say, I'm not gonna hire any more Christians because they act like what they do here where I work and what we do as a business isn't the most important thing. Man, that should never have been said about anybody who takes the name of Jesus Christ. It is impossible to be so heavenly-minded that you are no earthly good. That's impossible. The more heavenly-minded you are, okay, the more useful you ought to be. What Jesus did when he was here is he reversed the effects of the curse. There was nobody that was more heavenly-minded than Jesus. Let me just remind you of something. For three decades, Jesus worked as a carpenter before he did three years working as a preacher. Justin Martyr, who was a Christian apologist who lived in the second century from 100 to 165 AD, uh, was born in Syria, he said it was well known that there were still plows made by the carpenter in Nazareth that were useful a hundred years after he made them. Does it not surprise you that Jesus made good plows? Have you ever thought about this, that you ought to see the glory of God in Jesus's plows as much as you see the glory of God in Jesus's cross? Don't you know, if you were a farmer in Nazareth, you were glad that God's man made your plow, that God's man made your table. You can be sure there were no crooked chairs that were coming out of that carpenter's shop in Nazareth. Because he went to work for the glory of God. It's a means of grace to build good things. And the greatest means of grace is to build redemption in men's hearts. And one of the ways you do that when people say, Man, why do you make shoes this way? Because God loves you and He cares about your feet. Because God loves you and He wants your labor to have good return. So that's a good plow. Because God loves you. And when you sit in your chair, He doesn't want it to break or be uneven. It's impossible. The church's instruction, Dorothy Sayer, who wrote a lot on this topic, said this to, to, to intelligent carpenters is, is typically this. Hey, listen, man, don't be a drunk or disorderly in your leisure time. Make sure if you're a good carpenter, you're not a drunk and you come to church. That should not be the church's admonition to carpenters. The first church admonition should be make good tables for the glory of God. That's your calling. You have one job. You're the light of the world. Watch this let, it says in uh, Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that other people see your good, what? Your good works. That's not just helping old ladies across the street. It's if you're a road paver, it's to pave roads so she doesn't step in a hole and break her ankle when she's walking across the street for the glory of God, because good streets serve people. Let men see it. And when they go, why do you do this? Why is your work so much quality? Answer, because God loves you and I'm a means of his grace right here in your life. What Jesus did when he was here is he reversed the effects of the curse. That's what doctors do. That's what roofers do. That's what mothers do. That's what teachers do. That's what mailmen do. That's what preachers do. That's what landscapers do. That's what dentists do. That's what masons do. That's what cowboys do. It's what tent makers do. You go to work. It's your calling. Listen, making your work um, an object of worship is idolatry, but making work less than a form of worship is paganism. May we never do it. We are all ministers of the gospel, and the way that we minister is by going to work for people in a way that they're going to be blessed because we show up. I love what Luther said. He said, God himself will milk the cows through him whose vocation it is. Cows need to be milked. And I guarantee you, cows want a gentle milker milking them. Somebody's got to milk the cows. What a high and holy calling. And if God calls you to do it, do it for that. Let me just close with this. When I say have a great week of worship, what I'm really saying is work is worship. You gotta lose the idea that heaven is a perpetual coffee break. You gotta lose the idea that, that work is a curse. No, toil is a part of the curse, but work is a not a part of the curse. Part of the curse is how we work underneath it now and the lie that work for work's sake alone will satisfy us. It won't. So what do you do? You abide. You abide with Jesus. You remind yourself of how God went to work for you And tomorrow, wherever you are, you go to work. And the reason you go to work is not to make yourself more comfortable, but to be a means of God's grace in this world. You are God's grace in that classroom. You are God's grace grace in that kitchen. You are God's grace in that business where other people go, I am so grateful. I work for an owner who doesn't seek his own interest. You go to work for that godless owner and you show him that you're gonna honor God by working diligently underneath him. And you're gonna help him see the goodness of God. Don't be slack in your work, be great. Proverbs chapter 18, verse nine says, he was slack in his work is brother to him who destroys. When you've got a chance to do good and you don't do it, that's the devil's work. Every chance you have to make something better, you do it because that's what people filled with the spirit do. Be full of integrity. Walk securely by the way that you work in private and in public. Don't be that guy that has to shut down the, the, the solitaire screen when the boss rounds the corner. Why? Because you don't work for your boss. Whatever you do, Colossians 3 says, do your work heartily for the Lord and not for men. You can be sure of this. Your boss may not honor you for it, but you're not working for that boss. You're working for a different king. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, for God is not so unkind as to forget your work and the love which you have shown, watch this, toward his name in having ministered to and still ministering to the saints. When you love somebody by doing good work, you are loving God because God loves to bless people. The way God blesses people is by putting you at work tomorrow. When you fix somebody's air conditioner in a way that causes them to be more efficient and to cool their house, that delights God because he loves people to be comfortable. It delights God when you clean a pool well because God knows it delights people to have a clean pool. It delights God when you help people um, understand that they're not going to find. I've got a a note here, my buddy Scott Polk who, who sells diamonds for a living. Ran into a couple who went down there and the young man was exasperated because um, he couldn't get a big enough stone for the girl that he loved and he said this godly jeweler just sat with him and just explained this is what really is gonna bring blessing to your wife. Not the size of the rock in her hand but the size of the man's heart who yields to Christ in the way that he loves her. Don't go into debt to show your love. Be wise, model for her a certain kind of stewardship right now. He sat with them, prayed for them and helped them get a stone that fit them and not exploited and advanced his profits. That's what God's people do. Be full of integrity. Be committed to your task. Do you see a man skilled in his work? Proverbs 22, 29 says he will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. And when people say, why do you do the work that you do this way? You say, because God loves you, and your worth is very best, and I'm giving my very best to you that you might know that God cares about you. Love your coworkers, man. You know what this is? I've got this in my back pocket. I asked for a couple of these, you know, one from Raytheon, you know, or, or this one will get you into a school. You know what that is? That's a passport to an unreached people group that I don't have the ability to go into. But tomorrow you do. And God's going to send you in there and in that, that petty, tired, dysfunctional, backbiting place of work, it's going to become a grace-filled lover who's going to care for those that are around them, see how he can comfort them and encourage them. Tuesday, I'm going to be bearing David Sherrard here. First police officer ever killed in Richardson. You know why I'm burying him here? Because seven years ago, Sean Morgan, who's a member of Watermark, also part of that SWAT team, went to work as an agent of grace and bumped into David, who was in the middle of a broken marriage and an endless life of pain. And he shared with him as they sat there and went to work together about the goodness of God in his life. And David came to trust Christ. He's a member of our body restored his marriage, shepherds his kids, became a means of grace himself in that same SWAT team, that same police department because somebody knew their vocation was to be a godly SWAT team member and to love those that he went to work with. I was with Sean at their house on Friday and Sean goes, man, this is tough. I said, Sean, you know what's really tough? It's standing here like this when you work next to somebody for eight years and you never told them about where real hope can be found. And what makes a real man who can swoop in and be graceful and bring peace in his home, not just with this crime out there. That makes this really tough. Do you know God's given you a passport, folks? Do you know work is worship? Do you know if you love Jesus, then you ought to wake up and go, T-G-I-M. Let's go. We have gotten together, we have reminded ourselves about our holy calling, and we are gonna go and be a holy people, and there ought to be a town praying that folks who love Jesus, that are part of Watermark, work for them. Shepherd their kids, teach their classes, fix their air conditioners, pave their roads, balance their books, finance their cars. Let's go to work, amen? Father, I pray that we would see work as worship. I pray that we would love our coworkers so we wouldn't be grumblers. We'd do all things without grumbling or disputing and that we'd prove ourselves blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom we shall appear as lights in the world. We have one job and that is to go to work. I thank you for the privilege of the calling of teaching the word of God and I thank you for the privilege that the thousands that are part of our body have right now to go and to take our hands And to say, Jesus, go to work through me. Be redemptive. Restore what is lost. Bring your glory where your glory has been compromised. Let us be your people. Let us go to work. In Jesus' name, amen.